Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that examines equity and inequity in museums, exhibitions, collections, and programming. I'm Melissa. And I'm Claire. And well, here we are. It's hard to believe with this, our 20th episode, we put an end to our very first season of The Gallery Gap. We've created 20 episodes featuring nearly as many interviews with members of the arts community. We're grateful each and every day for this opportunity to talk about issues, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the sublimely beautiful. What started as a plan to feature the bios of women artists during the month of March has grown wildly beyond our expectations and demonstrates an extant need for more voices to join the conversation around issues of equity. Yes, we focus on the issue as it pertains to museums and galleries, but really our goal is to highlight the necessity of parity, tolerance, and empathy in one's daily life. And, of course, the role that art plays in supporting this. And I might add a few more necessities to this equation, justice and equity. So as we turn to the final chapter of this season, an examination of the exhibition Magnetic Fields, Expanding American Abstraction, 1960s to Today, we would like to remind you that this is the third of three episodes focusing on the National Museum of Women in the Arts, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year and hosting this landmark exhibition as part of that celebration. If you're just joining us now, welcome. We're glad to have you. But please press pause, go back, and listen to episodes 18 and 19 first. We promise it's worth your while. In this episode, we move from the National Museum of Women in the Arts founding, collections, and public programs to its present moment, this moment of jubilation that has been three decades in the making. Throughout the year, NIMWA has continued to grow and diversify its already stellar collections, exhibitions, and programs, and it wraps up 2017 with an exhibition unlike any that have come before. The exhibition Magnetic Fields is curated by Aaron Jedgetts and Melissa Messina and was originally organized for the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, Missouri. Magnetic Fields is on view in Washington, D.C. until January 21, 2018. Exhibition curators Aaron and Melissa did a phenomenal job of introducing the exhibition at the opening in October. I was lucky enough to hear their remarks that evening, but they've also done a great job of capturing its essence here. Quote, As the first museum exhibition of its kind, Magnetic Fields aims to be a catalyst for more broad and inclusive presentations of American abstraction. Intergenerational in scope, the exhibition amplifies the formal and conceptual connections between 21 black women artists born from 1891 to 1981, many presented in conversation with one another for the first time. Featuring a range of media, including painting, sculpture, printmaking, and drawing, The exhibition places these unique visual vocabularies in context with one another and within the larger history of abstraction, end quote. Included artists vary in terms of materials, technique, vision, and perspective, but all are connected by a love of abstraction, uniting them together and offering this opportunity for their works to both stand alone and also create a dialogue within the exhibition. We reached out to co-curator Melissa Messina via Skype and asked her to share her thoughts on the exhibition's creation, installation, and life. So how did you and the exhibition co-curator, Erin Judgetts, begin the project that has become the exhibition Magnetic Fields? Well, I always like to say that the exhibition, for me anyway, is about 20 years in the making. 
Um, I met Mildred Thompson in 1997. She was a professor of mine when I was studying painting and sculpture. And so everything I know about abstraction really stems from my time with her. And so in 2013, I applied and received a Warhol Art Writers Grant, which allowed me to begin to do more in-depth research on her life. She had passed away in 2003. And so the Mildred Thompson Legacy Project really came about from that grant. Uh, simultaneously, Erin and I were both working at the SCAD Museum of Art. I was the chief curator there. And we found that we had very similar curatorial sensibilities and interests. And at the time, we also had the incredible opportunity to work with the Walter O. Evans collection. It's one of the finest collections of African-American art in the world. And when the museum opened, he gifted um, about 60 plus pieces. And so because the museum's focus was contemporary, we were able to really kind of play with those historic pieces and put them in conversation with contemporary artists around themes. So the, the intergenerational conversation, the looking at African-American art history historically and seeing its influence on contemporary art today, looking at women's art. Um, I also helped, I uh, worked on the inaugurating team of the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. So we sort of had um, this culmination of interests and, and experiences that really brought about a conversation when she was beginning at the Kemper Museum. We began to ask ourselves if an exhibition around abstraction by black women had ever been done. And we thought for sure it had, and probably a number of times over. And in our research, we determined that it hadn't. And while there were a number of exceptional exhibitions around black abstraction, they leaned very heavily toward the male voice and really uh, was an exploratory question. And, and when we found out that there were all of these amazing women more than we ever knew who were making all of this work alongside their male counterparts. We thought, you know, the exhibition hasn't been done. Why not us? And taking that a little bit further, how did you decide to include the artists that you did and were, how were the artists involved in this process of creating the exhibition? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And one that we get asked a lot, it, it was challenging. Um, you know, any curator will tell you, you have to do the best you can with the parameters that you have, right? So, you know, whether it be time or, you know, a budget, in, in our case, it was, of course, that, but particularly, it was the space that we had to work with. What, what type of thesis could we present and really respect the artists and their works uh, within 5,000 square feet of space. Um, so we started with a handful of artists that we felt we had a more intimate knowledge of or that uh, maybe are better known than some of the other artists in the show. Alma Thomas, for example, was an obvious choice. And Mildred Thompson, of course, was an obvious choice, although certainly much lesser known, but because of my history and our Aaron and my shared affinity for her work. And then someone like Shanique Smith, who I had curated a solo exhibition for uh, a few years ago. You know, there were a few that sort of started the conversation for us and kind of, um, you know, led us on the road to the 21 artists that ultimately were in the show. But the, the other thing I will say is one of the smartest things we ever did was start um, an advisory committee of really esteemed women in the field who also guided us. So 
it, you know, it's a particular challenge when you're working on an exhibition of artists who are lesser known. Um, so we, we, I think in all of our research and studio visits and art and recommendations from other curators and, and, you know, people in the arts field and other artists, I think at one point we had probably about 40 artists on our list. Just, we didn't, now, we didn't want to do anything to narrow it too soon, right? We sort of cast it an internal wide net. And then I think it was when we we sort of settled on our, our theme, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more. But there was a moment where we saw that Abigail DeVille was born in 1981. And we realized that Alma Thomas was born in 1891. And something just clicked. We were like, oh, that's a, that's an amazing kind of bookend, you know, for the, for the exhibition. So, you know it's always a, a challenge to select work for any exhibition, but particularly when the artists are lesser known and when there's a lot of work to do around kind of reclamation and, and, and recognition and sort of rewriting history a little bit. Uh, the pressure was certainly on, but um, I also feel like 21 is a really great number because it's not an even number. It sort of alludes to me conceptually to the fact that it's 21 Plus, you know, there are other artists to to be uh, uncovered, discovered, re rediscovered, what have you. Um, we never intended the show to be um, comprehensive in any way. Certainly not one exhibition can write all, you know, historical can rewrite, you know, all historical omissions. So, again, we kind of narrowed we cast a, a really wide net and kind of let the exploration process and the artists and advisor, advisors kind of lead us as we um, honed that that in and refined it a little bit more. Picking up from that, do you want to speak a little bit about what some of the easiest and hardest parts of, of creating and curating mag magnetic fields was? Well, I actually kind of loved this question and thought about it and, and realized that the easiest and the hardest part was actually the same thing. Um, and I hope I can can articulate this in the, in the, in the clearest possible way, but... Erin and I realized from a very from very early on in the process that when you're dealing with work that is not as uh, highly recognized as it ought to be, and that as we were meeting these women, many of them um, we interviewed and spent uh, times time in their home and their studio hours, sometimes days, and they really deserved our respect and. So the easiest part was to listen, you know, they, they want their stories to be heard. And if we can create a platform for them to be heard and for their work to be seen, that's the, that's the easy part, but it's also the hardest part because you need, there's a certain level of pressure, right. That that puts on you that, that to, to really give the work, the respect that it's due, you have to make uh, incredibly careful decisions and, and ask a lot of questions and listen and let the artists guide. So, you know, going into an artist studio who's been plugging away for decades with very, very little recognition in terms of exhibitions or sales, and, and they spend five hours with you telling their story to you, they've let you into their home. It's a big responsibility and one that we, you know, did not take lightly and were very humbled by and um, emotionally 
connected to. And so to, to make the show the best that it could be in order to honor them and to show them in the best light and to show them in a way where they could perhaps finally get some of the attention and respect that is due to them. You know, again, it was kind of the easiest part because the work's incredible and we, we, we just listened and we let them guide, but it was the hardest part because it's a huge responsibility. You know, Claire and I were chatting about how um, how important it was and how cool it was that you got to do so many studio visits. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that process, what, what that was like, um, and if there were any studio visits that surprised you. Yeah, I mean, they they all surprised me because the lives of these women and what brought them to abstraction is so rich and complex. And not that I didn't expect that, but again, we sort of went in very quietly and very uh, reverentially and and listened to their stories and looked at their work and did not come with with too many presumptions. We wanted the artists to really lead the conversation. But, you know, there were there were many moments. I mean, the one that probably sticks out to me the most is um, having spent several hours in Betty Blayton's home and her studio up in the Bronx. And it's a home that was about to be torn down. It may, it may not exist. I haven't been back up there in a while, but at the time, um, they were tearing it down in order to make apartments and they were going to allow her to live in one of the apartments. And we're in the studio looking again at, at, an incredible amount of work. She's pulling prints out of drawers that she said has never left the drawers. She made them and put them in a drawer and they've never been shown. Um, Those are two actually um, that are in the exhibition. And then finding out about three hours in that it was actually her birthday. And so of course we're thinking, oh my gosh, this woman is spending her birthday with us. And then um, sadly it was her last birthday. Several months later, she passed away. We knew that she was ill, but we didn't realize how ill. And, um, you know, she called Erin from hospice to make sure that the loan forms had gone through and that her work would be included in the exhibition. So, you know, it, it, it's moments like that where we realized, I mean, we always knew the show was important, but it really cemented it for us that we're, we, these women are getting older, we're losing them, we're losing their voice. We were able to record the whole day's conversation. So um, to, to, to get some first person quotes from her that we inserted in the, the catalog essay, think, you know, things like that. And, and again, you know, that she wanted to spend her birthday with us and, and was so concerned literally on her deathbed that, that everything was set for the show. That just made us understand the gravity um, all the more of, of the importance of the show. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was not expecting that. It was a really emotional process. Yeah, I know we can tell. A lot of tears, yeah. uh, even at the openings. When, when at the Kemper, five of the artists came to the opening and each one, you know, sort of arrived at a different point, some the day before the opening and some the day after and um, individually walked through the show and every one of them cried. And of course, then I started crying. So it was a very emotional experience to see them respond to this exhibition. Um, Lillian Burwell turned 90 at the opening at the Kemper and sat next to me at dinner and thanked me for the show. And I, I, you know, I mean, you just can't, of course I was got goosebumps and I'm crying and saying to her, I don't need to be thanked. It is you who needs to be thanked, you know? So there were, there were moments like that where I could tell from their response 
that they thought we had done a good job with the show. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me what the critics say when the artists are happy with the show um, and they're having that type of strong reaction to it. I feel like we've, we've done our job. You know, Lillian was at the opening for the National Museum for Women in the Arts. So how, um, how was that? I mean, I got to, I got to meet her. I was so pleased to meet her. But how did she enjoy it in that space? Um, how was the opening from your perspective in general? It was really incredible. And, and Lillian um, came up to me. This is another Lillian emotional moment and said, I can't believe you. And I thought, oh, God, what did we do? You know, I mean, again, <laughs> we have so much respect for these women. And I thought, oh, God, what have we done? And she said, you put my work in the same room right next to Alma Thomas. I don't, des- I don't deserve to be in the same room with Alma Thomas. And I looked at her and I said, you absolutely do. And it's very long overdue that you are. And so, again, there are these just incredibly dramatic moments where, you know, I, I made – I made that curatorial decision in laying out the show and looked at, again, the formal connections, some of the uh, conceptual connections and and thought they played so beautifully in the space in D.C. And they hadn't been right next to each other in um, in, in Kansas City. And and for her to be so moved um, and, and to cry and to have her picture, t- I mean, there are many pictures from that evening of her standing in between the two paintings. And Again, I mean, it, it, it's the, those moments that as a curator, you really kind of live for and, and you realize uh, that, that you've done the artists, uh, you know, as good of a service as you can, you know. Would you say that this is the most emotionally charged exhibition you've worked on? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Without a doubt. And again, the responsibility was so great. And so we, we, we tread we treaded along very carefully. We asked a lot of questions. It's interesting. One of our advisors is Valerie Cassell Oliver, who's just a brilliant, brilliant curator. Um, and I heard her speak once and, and she described her curatorial process as one of exploration. And I think too many curators come to their projects with too many preconceived notions or the thesis kind of already developed. And then they're sort of bending the arc and including the artists or, you know, kind of bending it toward an idea that they already had in in mind. And I felt like that's not how I move through the world. I always want the artist to lead the conversation. And and quite frankly, if that's always been the case, there wouldn't be so much rewriting of art history that we need to do. Right. So, um, so you know, Aaron and I realized again very early on, this is not my lived experience. I have certainly felt it through my close relationship and friendship with Mildred Thompson and knowing all of the trials and tribulations that she went through in her life and that she died with her work not being as recognized certainly as it should be and as she thought it should be. And, but, but that is not my lived experience as a white woman, you know? So we, we were, we stepped through this process with the, the approach that, that stayed in my mind from Valerie's kind of conversation of, of explore this, you know, pose questions. Don't, don't come to it with, with answers. And I think that, in my mind led to the success of the show, whatever that means. But to me, it means that the artists are happy to be included in it, you know, that they feel like we've done their work a service. And as a curator, that's really all we can do is create a platform 
a lens under which to look at the work, a framework around the work, but the, the work needs to speak for itself. Um, and the artists are the one that's the ones that are making the history. You know, we, we can all we can do is put it out there. Well, and sort of jumping off of that and thinking about how how the exhibition is organized and and how it evolved and how how it evolved from your curatorial perspective, but also bringing in the advisory board and the artists, the artists that are included in magnetic fields are dedicated in their practice to non-representational abstraction. And the exhibition charts this broader trajectory of non-objective art practice. Can you talk a little bit about how the exhibition came to be formed in that way? We realized, again, it, 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 in some ways it comes down to parameters. What, what can you say in 5,000 square feet? And what can you say cohesively? And when we had our list of artists, and it was 40-something artists, and we're looking, we really had to make some very difficult decisions. And we, we had to realize that we couldn't cover the entire history of the contributions of African-American women into in American abstraction. And certainly there are many artists who are not included in the exhibition who have incredible bodies of work that are non-representational. Uh, but we felt like we wanted to really, A, make sure that the artists in the show were, were comfortable being in the show, right? That they identified as, as abstract artists, that they felt like their language really develops around uh, an expansion of abstract expressionism, uh, you know, that there's a, a the non-objective language of abstraction was at the crux of their, of their practice and that it was a sustained practice, right? So there are, are artists, perhaps like Samella Lewis, who would have been an elder in the show, who we had considered because certainly she influenced many artists in the exhibition and became a curator and art administrator as well and writer. Um, but when we were looking at her work, we looked at early examples of abstraction and they were incredible and sophisticated, but it was a very small part of what she did overall in her in her artistic practice. There were other artists who we felt like were perhaps maybe looking at the landscape, that they were abstracting a landscape, that they were abstracting the, the figure, but for whom the language of non-representational abstraction was maybe not at the core of, of the impetus of their work, I guess is maybe the best way I can say that. So that was sort of step one. And, and secondly, the second part of the, the question, I suppose, is, is why non-representational abstraction? And we really felt like to make non-representational abstraction from the 60s, it's certainly a little more open in the last generation or so. But from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, so much of what was preferenced in, in sales, in critical writing in you know scholarship in exhibitions we're looking at black women who were making work about the body or were or were focusing on a narrative aspect of their work that there were uh, representations around identity politics and certainly all of those are incredibly you know valid and important to to, to art history 
But we began wondering, you know, what what does it mean to sustain a practice within abstraction that is non-representational, that has a very Eurocentric male history, and continue in that vein for decades without with very little recognition. And in some times, and I can speak for Mildred, um, particularly, and, and other artists mentioned this, you know, sometimes their peers said, well, why don't you, why are you making this work? You know, it's not in vogue. It's not um, relevant. It's not black enough. Um, it's, it's too rooted in, in a white, you know, history. Um, and so the complications around what would bring a black woman to, to non-representational abstraction and in such a sustained way against sort of the odds, if you will, was really special to us, you know, and was something we wanted to think about as as a political act, right? I mean, you're you're sort of going against the grain and going against the advice of your peers in some case, and going against what the the larger uh, perspective of art history says or what you quote should be doing. Um, and and that was so interesting and intriguing. And of course, I, understood it as much as I can through through my relationship with Mildred Thompson, but it occurred to me there has to be other women and, and what did they face and what brought them to this practice. Um, and for all of these women, the answer was very different. Um, the impetus to make this work was very, very different. Um, but to, to tease that out seemed like an important conversation to have and one that perhaps hadn't been had. You know, and I'll, and I'll just add too that it is a complex conversation. You know, each artist did not come to this practice with the same history, with the same background, with the same education, with the same, con you know, conceptual underpinning to their work. So it was important to us to determine from each artist where their work was coming from and honor that rather than try to homogenize it and say, all of these women were making work to disrupt the, you know, male narrative or the white male narrative. I mean, certainly that is the case, you know, in many of the works and for many of the artists, but not all. So it was intended to really um, create a conversation around those many layered, complex uh, backgrounds for, for each artist. And so that was also important to us to not, not to, again, kind of assume any one thing about why these artists were making this work, but understand that they were all doing it, to, you know, um, in many ways to their detriment. You know, I mean, I hate to, that's such a strong word, but so many artists described to us that, you know, oh, I could have been in this show if I'm, if I made work about the body, or I could have been in this show, the dealer told me um, that he would say that it was painted by a man, just don't come to the opening, we'll sell it under a pseudonym or something. You know, I mean, these stories just kept coming up. And so, um, yeah, we, we really wanted to honor that and unpack it as much as we could in one show and, and hope that, again, knowing that this show is not intended to be a comprehensive correction, that there will be other curators who will want to take pieces of this and tease it out even further. You know, I would love to see someone do a show about uh, black women abstracting the landscape or, you, you know, I mean, I think there are so many other conversations that can be had from, from this one. Maybe to wrap it up, uh, could you share 
an artwork from magnetic fields that completely captures you. I've, you've made a lot of reference to the artists and their works, um, but is there one artwork that really epitomizes what the exhibition's goals are to you? Well, the, I mean, this may seem a little redundant, but it really does feel like the Magnetic Fields Triptych by Mildred Thompson. Uh, certainly, it's the namesake for the show. And when Erin and I had our many uh, running list of potential titles for the exhibition, we just kept coming back to, and of course, Mildred was an inspiration for, for the show um, in many ways and her life story. Um, but the work itself really does seem to capture this idea of bringing all of these artists together, bringing all of this work together and seeing what vibrations really take place between the work, right? And to have such a large, colorful, celebratory piece that's so strong and so dynamic, we really thought that was a great kind of focal point. And then when you look at the energy around the piece, that it's it's you know, kind of all of this, these marks that are kind of drawing you in and creating this incredible atmosphere, it really did feel like the perfect metaphor for, for the exhibition, that there are formalist conne connections, there are stylistic and material connections, there are conceptual connections, but every work is so unique and every artist's voice is so unique, as was Mildred's. I don't think there's anything in the show that you'd question who whose work it was, right? There's so many distinct voices and yet they sort of come together in this magnetic way throughout the exhibition and that we hope that the energy around that really does expand the conversation. That was lovely, <laughs> the way that you just framed that. You know, in, in D.C., it's not the piece that's closest to you when you enter the space, but it is the piece that really kind of embraces all of the rest. You know, when you see it, the triptych there um, at the back of that first gallery area, it's just, it's so well done, Melissa. Thank you. We are so grateful to Melissa Messina for making the time to speak with us during this episode, as well as for Susan Fisher-Sterling, Jenny Trainer, and Melanie Douglas for contributing to earlier episodes in this series. We would also like to thank Marjorie Newman, Amy Manorino, and the entire communications marketing team at NIMWA for their assistance in this episode's creation. Listeners, it has been an amazing year. Melissa and I look forward to catching you again in early 2018 with more exploration, conversation, and all the rest. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or you can listen to episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us, and also don't forget that we include additional information and materials on our Facebook page that relate to the episodes. So if you're interested in digging deeper, be sure to follow us. As always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. Remember that this project only exists because of listener support. Be sure to go to WVIK.org and click the donate button. A special thanks to our producer, Lacey Skarmana, our comrade behind the scenes. And a giant thank you to one of our founding producers, Alfredo Monteca. We miss you, buddy. We miss you. And this podcast would still be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Paterson Pates Design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. Last but not least, thank you to you, all of our listeners. Until next year. Until next year.